Well, um, we are a few weeks into our series on the Sermon on the Mount um, in the Gospel according to Matthew. So if you have a Bible or an app or whatever, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 5, uh, verse 33, and we'll get started. Uh, as you're turning there, there's a few resources that we wanted to share with you that we found incredibly helpful so far in this series. And uh, the first is called uh, The Divine Conspiracy uh, by a man named Dallas Willard. And uh, the second one is uh, The Cost of Discipleship by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, um, no doubt um, you're aware that we are constantly kind of referring to these books and their authors and their um, take on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, these books are both um, deeply, deeply shaping on the level of um, personal and even communal for our church discipleship to Jesus. And they're incredibly um, inspiring, convicting, challenging, uh, and eye-opening. And so we would highly recommend um, both of those, especially for those of you who would like to go deeper than we typically have time to go on a Sunday. So um, with that uh, kind of out there for you to um, take hold of, we'll go ahead and get started in the scriptures. We're picking up in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 33. These are the words of Jesus. It says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your own head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, before we get into the text this morning, uh, I want to take a moment to remind us of where we are. We are currently in a series of six teachings uh, in which Jesus is comparing the old way of righteousness as given in the law of Moses and interpreted by the Pharisees. And he's contrasting it with the new way of righteousness that are for his followers and the inbreaking kingdom of God. And, and he's kind of extrapolating a true interpretation of God's original law as it's now going to apply to his followers and the renewed kingdom heart. And this series of six contrasts sits within a, a bigger block of teaching, actually the biggest block of teaching we have from Jesus in the scriptures known as the Sermon on the Mount or the kingdom talk on a hill. And that entire discourse sits within, of course, the, the larger story and narrative of the book of Matthew on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of a man named Jesus from Nazareth. And we have to remember that, that uh, the entire book of Matthew sits within an even grander and bigger story, which is Genesis to Revelation, the story of God acting with humanity in history. 
And the reason this is important is to to keep the the big perspective in mind is that Matthew has written his gospel in a very specific way with very specific themes that he's embedded within his writing. He's a brilliant writer. And these are a few of the key themes that he's woven start to finish through his book. The first is that Jesus is a king in the line of David and in the line of Abraham, qualified to fulfill God's covenant with David and with Abraham as well. And so as the start of the New Testament, the book of Matthew kind of bridges the gap and shows that, no, Jesus is actually the fulfillment of everything that God's been doing thus far in history. It was all pointing forward to him Uh, as A piece of that puzzle, Jesus is this kind of new authoritative prophet and teacher who has strong parallels with Moses from the Old Testament. And third, that Jesus is, of course, more than a prophet, more than a teacher. He is God among us. And if you were with us when we officially launched the church and got into the book of Matthew, you've already heard us talk on some of these themes. But for our purposes today in the Sermon on the Mount, the most relevant theme is that Jesus, in a sense, is the new Moses. And so for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament starts, and really the Bible itself, um, starts with five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these five books together were known as the book of Moses. Interesting thing is that Matthew has written his gospel to sort of mirror these books. And in fact, uh, the book of Matthew is written in five major sections. And each section within the book of Matthew ends with an authoritative teaching from Jesus. Now, we are currently in the longest block with the longest teaching, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. But he's written these things to um, parallel one another. And, and, the parallel between Moses and Jesus uh, is actually a really profound one. And so you'll see as you, if you just start and start reading through the book of Matthew, if you're Jewish in the first century, you would notice that just as Moses um, brought the people out, came out of Egypt through the waters and freed God's people from slavery, bringing them into a, a favored standing within a, a covenant with God, so too now Jesus has come out of Egypt through the waters of baptism and is, is b- drawing to himself the renewed people of God in, in, in a favored position within a new covenant. And so just as Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai after they were freed, Now we have Jesus not receiving law from God, but as God among us, actually giving the true heart behind the law uh, as he ushers people into a favored position within the new covenant. And so there's this sense, and as a first century Israelite, you you would have seen as you were reading the gospel of Matthew, these strong parallels that he was drawing. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is the new Moses giving a, a new law within the context of a new covenant. But I wouldn't say that he's giving a, a new law per se. 
And, and if we take it just to be a law that we have to follow, then we're in danger of falling into the same trap of the Pharisees and kind of having an unhealthy relationship with the Sermon on the Mount. And so one of the key differences that we have to understand between Jesus and um, Moses is that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of everything that Israel was meant to be, of everything that Moses was meant to be. He's, he's the fulfillment of the law. And so now as we come to Jesus, we actually receive all of our righteousness, not from following any legal code, but actually directly from Jesus. He's fulfilled it. And now mysteriously, he's in us and we're in him and we share in his fulfillment. And so in him, we find unmerited grace and life and blessing. And only after receiving that, do we then become capable of operating in the kingdom of God. Uh, only then, after receiving, do we actually become capable of living out the words that Jesus is going to speak to his followers. But it starts with that recognition. And so now, as the, as the people of God, we are forgiven and we're cleansed and we're redeemed and we're restored and we're invited, adopted into a new family, so to speak, into the family of God. Um, and, and we share in Jesus' completion and fulfillment. We don't have to lift a finger to earn our righteousness. And yet there's this whole new life that Jesus is calling us to. And he's laid out all of these authoritative teachings for his um, followers to live under. And we have to be able to hold the two of those in tandem. The, the easiest way for me to, to conceptualize um, that the two of those living side by side is with the example of um, citizenship. So um, for the sake of illustration, I want you to imagine that you are a, a refugee fleeing um, natural disaster or persecution or something like that from the middle of the Amazon. And um, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that you find a way to make it to Ellis Island and that the moment you show up there, I know this isn't how it works, clearly, but let's just say that the moment you show up there, they take your picture, hand you a passport, boom, you're a citizen. Right then, the second you land, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to pay anybody. You, you're a citizen with full rights and responsibilities of being a citizen. In that moment, you have an irrevocable privilege. You're a citizen of this new country um, that you've just arrived at. But that doesn't mean you know how to live in America. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference between the two of them? And so you don't know how to ride a subway and you don't know how to get a job at subway and you don't know how to handle money and you don't know how to use a Western style restroom and you don't know, you don't know any of it. And so what would happen at that point is someone would have to teach you. They, they would have to invite you into the culture and teach you how to, and no, 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 you, you don't squat on the toilet. You actually sit on it and no, this is, this is called a credit card. And it looks like it's just plastic, but there's actually money like hidden inside of it. So this is all you need. You just take this and, and yeah, we eat at uh, Zips over Arby's and we, you know, and you have to just walk people through um, what life in America is like. Hey, we don't actually, we don't usually um, bow and pray to pictures of our leaders. So you don't have to do that. We mostly just elect them and then um, you get to insult them after they're elected. And, and you, you would just walk them through. No, this is, this is American. If you want a really good pizza, you go to the Flying Goat. 
and American goats can't actually fly. That's just what it's called to get you in the door. And, and you see there would be layers and layers of culture that you would have to explain to them in order to bring them up to speed. And so in the same way, in Jesus, you are already a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Full rights and responsibilities. The instant you gave your life to Jesus and were baptized into the community, you became a, a daughter of the living God. You became a son of the living God with irrevocable privilege, full rights and responsibilities. But that, that doesn't mean you know how to live and operate within this new family of blessing. That, that doesn't mean you know how to operate within the kingdom of God. And, and so Jesus is calling his disciples to himself and say, hey, let, let, me, let me teach you how we're going to operate in the kingdom. And so Jesus begins to tackle these issues that we've tackled over the last few weeks. And he talks about anger and bitterness that seeps into our heart and it twists and distorts. And then he talks about lust and adultery that consume and fracture. And then he talks about the selfishness that drives so many uh, divorces. And what he's saying is, hey, um, these things, they don't make sense in the kingdom. You're part of a new family now, and, and that's not really how we do things in, in this family. That's not how they don't fit in here. We don't you know, squat on the toilet seat, and we don't light open fires for cooking in the living room, and we don't, and you have heard it said, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, this series has just been a punch in the gut. I mean, just to wrestle with this material and prepare uh, for the teachings throughout the week, it, for me, is exhausting. I mean, these are heavy topics, and, and I don't know about you, but for me, anger, lust, divorce, and selfishness have hit pretty close to home. And then we get to a teaching like this one, and I know what some of you are thinking, right? Like, finally, a teaching that I can obey. Finally, we get a week off. Okay, I didn't swear any oaths this week. Check that one off the list. Good with Sermon on the Mount. Let's move on. And in fact, if you look at recent history, and by recent, I mean like 100 to 200 years, um, that's recent biblically. And you look at uh, the way that Christians have interpreted this passage, many of them have assumed that what Jesus is talking about here is, are things like swearing an oath of office swearing allegiance to a government, or um, giving testimony in court proceedings. Do you swear? Yes, I swear to God that I will tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And so what's happened over the last couple centuries is that a lot of Christians have actually been jailed in this country, imprisoned, because of their refusal to swear an oath in court. And they said, no, 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 this is flatly forbidden for us. We, we can't swear um, to anything. Jesus says, don't swear by anything at all. And I especially can't swear on or to or by God. That's the way they interpreted this. And so if that's the way that we choose to interpret this passage this morning, we'll probably come out clean. 
Um, I didn't, I wasn't in court at all uh, this week swearing testimony on someone's behalf. I haven't been sworn in, into any legal office within the government. So I guess this just doesn't really apply to me. I haven't sworn to God or to anything recently. But in order to understand what Jesus is actually getting at, we have to go back further. We have to go back into ancient history. And in fact, this controversy starts all the way back near the beginning of the Bible in Exodus 20, verse seven, where God is giving Moses what we call the 10 commandments or the 10 speakings or sayings. Uh, and one of them said this, said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's my son. He gets a free pass. Oh, that's your son. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. You have to leave. Um, and, and so I'm joking. Um, but the, the way that this played out as one of the Ten Commandments um, was that swearing of oaths was actually a very common practice in the ancient Near East. And so what people would do as a part of everyday life, but according to the scriptures and this commandment, you weren't supposed to swear uh, an oath using God. You could swear an oath to God and do your best to keep it, but you weren't supposed to swear an oath um, by God or using God for your own benefit. Cause that was invoking God's name for, for an illicit um, purpose for your own purposes. And so the way that this would play out is um, every Israelite understood, Hey, God is holy and pure and good and righteous. And so now I'm in a fight with my neighbor over a missing donkey. And he says, Hey, I saw you take that donkey. And I said, no, I didn't. And he says, I saw you. No, I didn't. And he says, I swear I saw you take that donkey. And I say, no, no, no. I swear to God, I did not take your donkey. And in the first century and even further back in history, three, 4,000 years ago to say that was to end the argument right then and there. I, okay. I can't touch that one because now you've invoked God and, and God's holy and righteous and pure. And I, who am I to question God? You must, you must be right. And, and so really what I just did in that situation was I, I traded on God's name. I, I borrowed on his reputation. And, and that was using God's name for the wrong purpose. And that was using God's name in vain. So when the scriptures say, hey, don't use God's name in vain, uh, don't think cussing, although please don't use God's name as a cuss word. Uh, it doesn't really make sense at all. But uh, that's not what this is talking about. This is actually talking about using his name for the wrong purpose. And so what happened was, um, is that, it's, that swearing remained a part of the culture, but instead of swearing to God, they inched their way down the hierarchy of holiness and, and just swore on something less than God. They'd say, well, I swear by heaven or I swear by the temple because it's the holiest thing on earth, or I swear by the gold in the temple, or I swear by Jerusalem, the holy city, or I swear on myself, on my own head. But Jesus, he cuts straight to the heart of the matter. And he says, don't swear at all. And he's not talking about cussing. He's saying, you don't have to swear on anything. Uh, not on heaven or the temple or the gold in the temple or your own head or anything at all. 
It's all God's, by the way. Don't swear on any of it. And, and by confronting this practice holistically, he, he's challenging a part of their everyday life, but it also drives and demands that we ask the question, okay, let's take a step back. Why do people swear on anything at all, ever? And, and that is a matter of manipulation. It's manipulation. What you do when you swear by God or by anything else, especially in Jesus' day, is that you are invoking something that has absolutely nothing to do with the conversation. So yes, it's wrong to invoke God's name for the wrong purpose, but there's an even bigger issue going on than that. And, and that's that what you're doing in that moment is you've involved something unrelated to the topic at hand in order to elevate your will and your wishes and your desires over that of the other person. What you're saying when you did that in the first century and, and even today, you're saying, I want to win this argument and have my will done, not yours. And, and I want to do it without complaint or pushback. We're just going to end this right now. Do, do what I say. And, and here's how I'm going to do that. And so by invoking God, what you were doing is you, you were throwing up a smokescreen. You were invoking a tool to, to override the free will judgment of the other person in order to get their way. And as Augustine pointed out, we've been doing this since infancy. From the moment we're born, we use the tools at our disposal to compel others to conform to our will. And as the cries of infancy and the fits of toddlerhood fade, we just replace them with more subtle arts. That impulse doesn't go away. It just shows up in different places. In fact, in a fallen world, this is, this is part and parcel of our experience as human beings. If you go back and read the opening pages of scripture, what you see is that the prototypical humans, Adam and Eve, are in this beautiful relationship with God. But instead, they want their will done over God's. And so they um, go beyond what God said and they separate themselves from God. And, and as, a, as a result of this separation, God steps in and he says, hey, here, here's the natural consequence of what, what happened here today. Of you saying you don't want life with God, you want something else. And, and what he says is he turns to Eve and essentially what he says to Eve is, your desire now in this fallen world will be to rule over your husband and your husband, he's gonna try and rule over you. Welcome to a fallen world. And what was true in that relationship is true in all relationships. He agrees. It, it's husband over wife, sister over brother, friend over friend, but not too much because then they won't be your friends anymore. But if they become your enemy, then it's certainly your will over theirs. It is the desire to dominate and control others that manifests itself in manipulation. And it becomes the air that we breathe. This is with us from birth. The very first thing that we understand is our will. 
And the very first thing we learn is how to project it onto others. If you think that babies are innocent and sinless, just read Augustine or have a baby. They're not cute because they're innocent. They're cute because they're helpless. And they usually show up with chubby cheeks and they just look cute. And and so by design, we we are drawn to to help babies. We have a three month old in the back. We're, We're drawn, we're wired for that but they are also experts in enlisting our help to achieve their ends. And as we grow our methods of manipulation and control of others, it it doesn't go away, it just changes. Some of you have heard of uh, the childhood stage called the terrible twos, where kids hit this certain age and all of a sudden they just lose their minds. Um, Our older son is, is almost two right now and he's kind of, edging into that. And, and you want like, why is it that every time we get into a public place, every time we enter this, you just lose your mind. Like what's going on? Why are you losing your mind? You were fine last year. What, what happened? And, and what's happening, honestly, what's happening in that moment is that they are being violently confronted with the reality that life is not all about them and that everyone else in existence is not there to serve them. And and as they're coming to grips with this reality, everything inside of them fights back against, that is a bitter pill to swallow. It can't be true. No, I want my will done. And I will do any, I will use any tool within my power to accomplish that. Even if it embarrasses mom and dad in the middle of a supermarket, right? And and girls, by the way, are are just as good, if not better at this than boys are. Boys, I think, we naturally turn to strength um, in order to kind of dominate and manipulate others. Um, But girls from a very young age, um, they're not relying on strength, they're relying on wit. And so rather than learning how to punch people, they they use their words and and their body language and a well-placed smile from the youngest of it. And it shows up in a thousand different ways, but all of us are doing this. The impulse to rule others is so deep seated that Augustine referred to it as the libido dominandi. Am I saying that right? Yeah, libido dominandi, which was the desire to dominate. And it it was so prevalent He said, hey, this, this is the root of all sin. It's the attempt to become God, to rule, to control and dominate. And it has deeply corrupted our actions. And it's embedded in the other things that Jesus is talking about. It's embedded in the lustful stare. It's embedded in our consumerism and in our daily interactions and in our well-placed smiles. And of course, in our oaths and promises as well. And so what looked like the most obscure topic in all of Sermon on the Mount ends up, I think, hitting home the hardest because all of us are in this. In subtle ways and in big ones, it manifests itself in a thousand different actions and attitudes, but it's there. And it's embedded in our compliments and in our brown nosing 
And, and it's embedded in, in our promises and our oaths and in our giving that's not really giving. You know the loaded gift that you receive that isn't truly a gift because it has strings and expectations attached to it and quid pro quo and all of it's embedded in all of these things that we do. It's in our withholding, it's, in our with, it's in, within our advertising, it's in our sales gimmicks, it's in our business deals, it's in our politics. It is driven by these things. It's the CEO who lords it over his employees, using his power as a threatening force to get results. It's the woman who uses her beauty and her effect on men to get her way. It's the bully on the grade school playgrounds who, who, who expresses his insecurities by projecting them onto others and threatening and manipulating. Hey, I'm insecure. You're going to be insecure too. Desire to dominate. And it's showing up in all of these different places. Manipulation, the will to dominate, to have their will done, is fueling those swinging fists. It's fueling the words that we use to cut each other down. But it's also in, in the passive aggressive comment said about you, in front of you, or behind your back. It's the poisonous rumor planted. It's the propaganda spun. It's the false advertisement. It, it, it's the unquenchable impulse within the heart of humanity to elevate, to bend and warp reality in order to elevate your desires and your self-confidence and your pleasure and your plan and your profit and your reputation. Libido dominandi powers the human machine and the consumer economy. And it's not just out there. Oh, how I wish that was the case, but it's in here too. And, and it's in here. Within the church, it shows up in a different way, but ironically, the way that it shows up um, falls even more squarely under what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Because in here, we don't just carry the desire to manipulate and control one another. Uh, we actually become guilty of the very thing that Jesus is talking about, which is couching our speech in religious language in order to get our way. And so we don't swear by the temple or heaven or the gold in the temple or whatever, but we do use Jesus within church culture to justify our actions and decisions. And so we say things like, oh, I'll, I'll have to pray about that. Or I, God told me, and then fill in the blank, or I really sense that God is leading me to not do that. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes what we mean when we say that is that we, we don't actually want to do something. And, and we say, I don't want to go there. I don't want to commit to that. I don't want to have to do that thing. And I don't want you to even begin to question my motives. It is the exact same thing as saying, I swear by the gold in the temple. In the first century Israelites say, oh my gosh, that's the end of it. Can't, I can't question that. I can't question God. End of the argument. Case closed. And, 
and it happens today. Okay, what wh you know? Why did you leave your your missional community? Why why did you quit your job? Why did why did you not follow through on that thing you promised you were going to do? Oh, I just you know I just felt God leading elsewhere. You, you see how that works? I, I I just didn't have a peace about employment. And I want to be as sensitive as I can here because many of you are completely genuine in your prayers. You're completely genuine in, in being spirit led. Um, you're completely genuine in saying, Holy Spirit, I want you to fill me and guide me. My point here is that this arena of our lives is ripe with opportunity to trade on God's name, to borrow his reputation. And you know who's at the greatest risk of abusing this? I am. Matt Karsh is, our, our elders are, our worship team, our prayer team, our kids leaders. We are. Church leadership is at the greatest risk of violating the heart behind what Jesus is saying. Because the temptation is, I'm going to make a decision and then I'm going to blame it on God and just say, I'm gonna make my decision, just me, all alone. And I'm gonna say, this is, where, this is what God is leading. This is what God has, has asked us to do. And so it, when I say that, I have to pause and say, wait a second, do I, really, do I really believe that? Because some of the time it's honestly true. This is really where we sense God is leading us. And if that's the case, there's no need for anyone to be cynical about it. But what Jesus forces us to do is to check our motives behind the things that we're saying. P please, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This church would not exist if young people were not willing to sit and listen to God and sense him calling in a certain direction and say, that sounds impossible, but I'm going to do it. We wouldn't be sitting here if that wasn't the case. And so if that's true and you sense that it's true, please don't stop saying it. I, I have no problem with the phrase, God is leading me to, or I don't have or I need to pray. Those are all good things. But what Jesus is saying is that you can use religious, we can add spiritualized language to, to throw up a smoke screen and overwhelm the judgment of another person and end the debate. All right. If that's what God told you to do, if that's where God's calling you, then who am I to question it? Of course you had to quit your job. Of course you had to leave your community group. Of course you couldn't follow through on what you said you were gonna do. God asked you. Do you see how that works? It has the potential to creep in all over the place in every facet of our lives. Um, I've been a pastor for a few years now um, before planting this church. And, and I can't tell you how many ladies I knew over the years who were asked out on dates um, by a guy that they didn't really like. And they knew the second he came up and asked, they knew what their answer was. The answer is no not interested, but, but they went to open their mouths. Again and again, this happens. They go to open their mouths in that awkward moment. And what do they say? I'll, I'll have to pray about it. And, and I, no, you don't. Like, you know, you already know. I just, oh, I just don't have, have a peace about it. 
which basically means, hey, I'm totally neutral, but God said we shouldn't date, so why don't you take it up with him? Sorry. And what does Jesus say? He says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Which sounds harsh, right? But he's saying, hey, just say yes. Just say no. You don't have to cover everything in religious language or add extra stuff around it. Anything you add for your benefit and for the purpose of manipulation is from the evil one. And so there are things that we can very genuinely say as we're being spirit led by God. But, but there's also things that we add in needlessly because we want to end the debate. We want to avoid the real honest conversation that sits in front of us. I don't wanna have that conversation. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna screen that straight out. I have something else that I can say. And anytime we do that and we add that extra language for our purposes, for our will, for the sake of manipulation, that is a threat to legitimate gospel-centered relationships. Today, today is gonna to be a long day for me. Uh, I got up extra early to kind of pray for the gathering today and to prepare. Um, I showed up here at the church several hours before um, the gathering officially started. Uh, right after the gathering, we have uh, a leader meeting for all of you who are involved in leadership with our kids classes downstairs. So I acted as an announcement, don't forget. Uh, but we have that directly after the gathering. By the time we finish that and clean up, I'll have a short break before um, refugee soccer in the evening. And I'm going to get home probably 8 or 8.30 tonight. And we have two babies under two years old. My wife does an incredible amount of work behind the scenes in order to make all of that other stuff possible. So can you imagine if I walk in the door tonight, 8.30, and, and I hear the babies crying, and I see the, this messy kitchen, which my wife hates, and I say, honey, I, I really sense that God is calling me not to do the dishes tonight. Just had a really long day, and I just feel like God is calling me to rest. Wait, 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 don't be upset. Just, just take it up with God. In, in fact, why don't you pray to God about it while you're doing the dishes? Um, but me, I, I just, he's just calling me to rest right now. So I'm going to see what's trending on Netflix. It, rhetorical question. Thanks, honey, for, for being so faithful to God's call in my life. Rhetorical question. Is that manipulative behavior a threat to the gospel-centered relationship that God has asked me to cultivate with my wife? Absolutely, yes. It, instead, and this works, by the way, if you don't believe me, you can try it. It works on roommates too and friends. You can use it in that moment to override their judgment, to override their will, and you will get your way in that moment. But what's happening in your heart in that moment and what's happening within that relationship is completely antithetical to the gospel. Some of you are laughing. I hope you haven't done it. You're like, oh my gosh, I just did that. Um, here's what Jesus is saying. In 
everything that you do as a follower of Jesus, you need to check your motives. As we end the teaching today, one takeaway, and it's so simple, but it is so profound in everything you do, check, check your motives, especially in the beginning of your journey. Because if you're new to following Jesus, you know that in your pre-Jesus life, the only thing you had to operate on was your will. My desires, my will, my dreams, that's, that's all you have. And so now as we're learning to follow Jesus, as we're learning to operate in the citizenship that has been freely given to us, you're still gonna have that impulse to, to dominate others, to subtly coerce them into conforming to your will. And Jesus is saying, hey, check your heart, check your motives. If I get home tonight and, and I open the door and walk in and I say, honey, I am so tired tonight. It could be because that's the honest truth and I wanna openly communicate with my wife and tell her about my day. Nothing wrong with that. But it could be because the first thing I see when I walk in the door is a stack of dishes. And the first thing I hear when I walk in the door is two crying babies and I just don't wanna do it tonight. And, and selfless, sacrificial, humble service just sounds inconvenient. Dying to myself sounds bitter and, and couching it in religious language just seems too obvious. That's okay. I'll, I'll find another way to, to subtly plant the seeds and assert my will and get my way. So in everything that we do, we, we have to honestly check our motives behind it. Why do I want to say this to my wife? Why do, honestly, why do I want to post this thing on Instagram right now? What, what's my motive behind it? What's driving it? Is it, is it a spirit-filled desire to, to love God and to love others? Or is it the libido dominandi coming in and controlling my actions and looking for me to elevate my image and my reputation and my free time and my rest and over theirs. At the core of the spiritual life and discipleship to Jesus lies a love so transformative that it changes us from the inside out. And as it does, it eclipses our driving desire to, to manipulate. It, it sterilizes uh, our desire to elevate our will over the others. It, it kills our thirst for control. And it teaches us over time through love and grace to at last become the people who say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And in that, you will find a greater satisfaction than you have ever known in your scramble for self-gratification. But first you have to surrender. First you have to let go. First you have to say, God, I trust, I trust you. And I trust that your will is, is better, is better than my will. I, I want that for my life, for my neighbor, for my enemy. I want that. And, and when you learn to do that, when you learn to surrender in that way, you, Jesus says you're in it. 
you're, you're operating in the kingdom of God, in the flow of God's life and blessing among us. And Jesus says, there is no better way to live. Let's pray.